7.6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Aaron, if you want to come up, we will, pre- or we will pray for you before you preach. God, we thank you so much for Aaron. We thank you for his preparation this week. God, we thank you for him and Caitlin, for the hearts that you have equipped them with to love you and to serve you and serve our church body and to serve our city. We thank you for both of them. Continue to give them them peace and joy in where you've called them at the time that you've called them to the people that you've called them to. We thank you for him. Help us have just hearts that are open to hear what you want to teach us, Lord, through Aaron. We thank you for this. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Surprise. It's me. When I told you last week to pray for whoever was uh, preaching this verse today, I was secretly encouraging you to pray for me today. So thank you if that was you this week. I have to say that one of the things that I'm most excited about having kids for is the holidays. Uh, Getting to experience all that through his eyes. Valentine's Day, Halloween, looking forward to have all that extra candy in the house, um, enforcing what I've heard is the dad tax on all imports. On the 4th of July, you know, imagining watching him watch fireworks. Uh, I've got a feeling that'll be awesome. Getting to explain the significance of all of our different kind of church holidays, and then um, all the gift-giving holidays. I mean... We all know how much it is, or how much fun it is to receive a present. It's great. Uh, but I've heard from a lot of my friends who already have kids that watching their kids open presents on Christmas morning is really the thing that gives them so much joy. Except for when sometimes it doesn't. And there are times when, unfortunately, the moment is spoiled, whether through immature misunderstanding or on purpose, hopefully not on purpose. Uh, my wife, Caitlin, told me that I could share this story with y'all this morning. One Easter Sunday, when she and her brother were in elementary school, uh, they're opening eggs together at their grandparents' house. Easter's great. You know, it's the pinnacle of our church calendar, celebrating Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and then all the candy on top of that. As her brother is pulling eggs out of his basket, he gets to one without any candy in it. Instead, it has a small folded up piece of paper inside. On it's written, you know, you have a big surprise for you under the stairs. So he runs downstairs, and Caitlin can hear from the living room, a bike? Yeah, it's a pretty great Easter surprise. Uh, But then Caitlin starts to feel a little bit left out. She doesn't have a new bike. So her parents reassure her, you know, keep opening your eggs, you know, you have a special one in there too. She's frantically going through the eggs, shaking them next to her ears to hear what's inside. Jelly beans, meh. Snickers fun size, whatever. And then, shake, shake, shake. Wait a second. That doesn't sound like something you can eat. She opens up her special egg, and there's a pair of small diamond earrings inside. 
Caitlin had just gotten her ears pierced recently, and her mom wanted to give her, you know, one of her first really nice pieces of jewelry. Pretty, pretty great gift, right? It is, except for the fact that you can't ride a pair of diamond earrings up and down the street with your brother and your friends. They're great, except for the fact that they're not a bike. And now you and I know uh, that purely in terms of like the monetary value of the gift, Caitlin probably came out way ahead of her brother. But since she had already had her heart set on a new bike, she looked at the earrings with anger and disdain. She threw them onto the floor, left the living room, then her mom left the room crying and upset. The thoughtful gift that uh, she had given was received with scorn and tossed aside. I asked Caitlin if I could share that story because, at least on its face, I don't know if you could even make up a better sermon illustration for our verse this morning. Jesus teaches his disciples, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. If Jesus were teaching this to my mother-in-law, maybe he would say, do not give to immature daughters what is highly valuable. Do not present what is precious before little girls with pigtails, lest they toss them to the floor and turn to attack you. It's a bit of a strange verse, to be sure. Uh, There's not a real strong connection between this verse and what follows next week. Um, And different commentators kind of debate, you know, just how strong this verse connects to our passage from last week. Uh, But as we look at it together, I think what we'll see is that this, this week's verse really functions as kind of a pendulum swing protection. It's a pendulum swing protection type of teaching. I'll say more about what that means later on. And then there are three themes that we can draw out of this verse and meditate on. The first two, we see them, I think, pretty naturally in the verse. Uh, discernment and protection. As we unpack Jesus' metaphor, we'll revisit, to some extent, our themes from last week. uh, How we rely on the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance to discern between matters, evaluate things. Then we have to address that idea of protection that we see here, too. It probably feels a little bit unnatural, and there's a good reason for that. And then thirdly, as a point of more internal application will reacquaint ourselves with the sacredness of our treasure. That's an idea that's kind of implicit rather than explicit in our verse today. But discernment, protection, reacquaintance. So let's dive into our verse. Uh, Let's begin by examining the main subject of the metaphor, these pearls, that which is holy or sacred. This one verse, uh, it doesn't ever explicitly tell us what the holy thing is, what the metaphor uh, means, what the pearls represent. But I think we can probably look at some of Jesus' other teachings to help determine what it is. So later, when we get to Matthew 13, Jesus will teach his disciples, he'll teach the crowds with this parable. He'll say, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
So we see here, again, that imagery of pearls being used. I think then we can conclude that what Jesus is talking about in this verse today is the gospel and the kingdom of God. We've got the pearls, these holy, sacred things, God's kingdom and the gospel. It's also probably safe to include more broadly things that the rest of the New Testament would, would call sacred and holy. God's name, God's glory, God's people, the church, and God's word. Don't give the gospel to dogs. Don't cast the kingdom before pigs, lest they trample it underfoot, then turn to attack you. Next, we should probably move on to the elephant in the room, or rather, the dogs and pigs in the passage. This language, uh, it probably makes some of us uncomfortable. Kind of makes me uncomfortable when I first uh, opened my Bible earlier this week to study. We probably, we properly intuit that Jesus is not giving us a lesson in zoology. He's just teaching us about dogs and pigs. The dogs and the pigs, they represent kinds of people. Now today, 2023, in our culture, um, these two animals, you know, is used in an analogy or an insult, usually, uh, have a lot of extra baggage that was not present when Jesus first spoke these words. Let's just be real for a second. Today, if someone were to call someone else a pig, usually that's an insult regarding their weight or their cleanliness. To call someone a dog is to say something about their general appearance or their worth. Unfortunately, in a more derogatory or profane sense, it's usually an insult that's directed towards women. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not how Jesus uses this metaphor. And we know we always read about Jesus um, standing up for and ministering to vulnerable women in the gospel narratives. Which, when I say that, might raise another question for you, if you're familiar with your Bibles. Because later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will again use this imagery, like with the pearls. We see Jesus use this dog language again, and in an interaction with a woman, no less. So let's look at that one as well. It'll help us understand what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, we won't unpack this whole passage here uh, from Matthew 15. But again, this is going to help inform us, just another use of that metaphor to help us understand what Jesus is trying to say in both cases. Dogs in Jesus' context were not the same as dogs in our context. For many of you, 
your dog is an adorable pet. Actually, I've met a lot of your dogs, and they are indeed adorable. They sleep in your houses, maybe even your bed. You feed them, you give them water, and it's not uncommon today for uh, people to think of their dogs or other pets as family or household members. And that could not be further from Jesus' experience with dogs, most likely. In his world, dogs were ravenous, wild, vicious. They roved in packs around the outskirts of the city. They were vectors for disease. If and when they ventured into your town, they would eat whatever they could find, including trash and scraps that you had thrown out. They were not members of anyone's family. They were dirty, outcast animals. If you spend any time uh, in or around the neighborhood, around our church, you'll notice that there are lots of street cats that run around. They jump in and out of the sewers. Uh, they wander into your backyard to poop and fight each other. They hang out on your porch and barf all over it. They're adorable, and they are not friendly, and they are not your family. <laughs> I tried to make a peace offering one time uh, to one of these cats with some deli turkey that I had, only to get hissed at and almost scratched. These are the kinds of animals that Jesus is talking about. These dogs, they wouldn't even accept a kind gift without looking for a fight, turning to attack you. Then what about the pigs part of this analogy? According to Jewish law, pigs were unclean animals. Unclean animals. You weren't supposed to eat them. You weren't even supposed to touch them. If you have any friends who are Orthodox Jews, uh, still today, they will make sure not to eat pork as a part of keeping kosher. Uh, whatever, whenever we see pigs pop up in the New Testament, um, usually that's a sign that the story is taking place in another region, not in the land of Israel or Judea. Um, or it illustrates to us just how far the character of the story has fallen. Think about um, the prodigal son. He reaches his lowest point when he's feeding the pigs. Pigs were impure. They were unclean animals. And uh, if you touched one, it would defile you and prohibit you from worshiping God in the temple until you had become clean again. Pigs, like most other animals, but maybe even more so, uh, are chiefly concerned with where their next meal is coming from. If you walk by a pig pen with a bag full of pearls, you wouldn't just open it up and let them look at it, right? Pigs eat things like corn, acorns, other small pearl-shaped objects, foods. If you present pigs with pearls, they'll probably assume that it's dinner time. Obviously, pearls don't make for a quality meal, not even for pigs. So they might attempt to try a few, but then spit them out and stomp them into their slop. They don't have the ability to discern something valuable from something un unvaluable, something worthless. So what's the whole picture that we get from these two images? Certainly, they're not positive images, but I also don't believe we're to read these as Jesus making personal insults. Dogs and pigs, they are often used to describe Gentiles, non-Jewish people. What Jesus is talking about here is bringing the kingdom, taking the gospel, evangelizing those who don't know him. 
to those who are outsiders of the family of God and who respond inappropriately to the message. Jesus is talking about bringing the kingdom, taking the gospel, evangelizing those who don't know him, those who are outside of the family, and respond inappropriately to that message. So what puts something, what puts someone in these categories for Jesus? Ultimately, it's a matter of discernment and response. The heart of someone that Jesus is critiquing, like the pig, is unable to discern the true value of God's kingdom or the gospel when it's presented to them. They trample it under their feet. Maybe on purpose. Maybe just because they don't know any better. They can't discern. And like the dog, they respond to this sacred, wonderful gift, not with welcome and receptivity, but with attack. Now, real quick, um, if you're here this morning, this is your first time here, you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, I don't think Jesus is talking about you right now. Um, if he was, you wouldn't be here. Like, you're not, you're investigating. You're not trampling. You're not attacking. But looking back, a failure to discern the value of something uh, is probably an experience we can relate to. There's a stand-up comic who uh, I think is pretty funny. He did a bit one time about people comparing movies and food that just don't belong together, that are categorically incomparable. Say something like asking someone what their favorite food is, and they would say, well, lobster and Skittles. They don't, they're not even in the same realm of comparison. The Columbia version of this would be like, if I asked you what your favorite restaurant was or what you thought the best restaurant in town was, and you said, CC City Broiler and CC's Pizza Buffet. Now, look, you can go to both those places. You can like both those places. I'll tell you right now, I went to the Pizza Buffet last week, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But to be asked about the best restaurants in Colombia and compare those two to each other reveals the lack of discernment that Jesus is highlighting. You either value the pizza buffet far too greatly or the city broiler far too little. Pearls and pig feed, they're about the same magnitude of difference between CC's and CC's. Again, I went to the pizza buffet last week. I'm not trashing it. Jesus says, if someone values the kingdom the same way that they value every other thing, mundane or profane, they're not in a position to receive it. Pastor Kevin and I were, we were talking about this passage all week long uh, as we were also talking about the Super Bowl today. He brought up a story that I think really illustrates kind of the attacking dogs side of this metaphor too. So in about six or seven hours, you know, you're going to be sitting down with a big plate of pizza and wings, watching the game. This year it's the beloved Kansas City Chiefs versus the fairly innocuous Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know. I can't hate them that much. They led my fantasy team to a title this year. Uh, but the story that Kevin reminded me of was about this infamous moment in Eagles fans' history. Back in the 60s, they were pretty terrible most of the time. One year in the last game of the season, snowy December afternoon, the team ownership wanted to you know, try and lighten the mood at halftime, cheer everyone up. So what do you do? 
You bring out uh, none other than jolly old St. Nick. Who doesn't love Santa Claus? I mentioned it was a snowy afternoon. The Eagles fans, they were in no mood for Christmas cheer that day. But instead, they began to share their misery with Santa by pelting him with snowballs. I looked up an article to read more about this incident, and uh, one of them quoted an 11-year-old boy who was in attendance at the game. He said, quote, It was the only fun part of the game, and everyone from fathers and sons and even the old ladies joined to help pelt Santa with snowballs. How, how dare you present someone as wholesome as Santa Claus only to have him pelted with stadium snow? Don't give to dogs what is holy, lest they turn and attack you. In our passage, Jesus says, Beware those who would respond to the gracious message of the gospel with scorn or harm. So how do we apply this passage? What does it look like not to cast our pearls before pigs? And why does it feel so unnatural to protect or withhold the gospel message from people? Let's start with the last question. Why does it feel so unnatural? Like I said earlier, I think it it probably does feel weird. These words are probably have a hard time fitting into the rest of our understanding. And there's a good reason. Likely, what you're picking up on is some of the verses we've read already in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we read uh, in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. But doesn't this seem like a judgment? To call people dogs and pigs, it is a kind of judgment. But remember, Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1, they're about our hypocritical, hypercritical condemnation of others, not against all forms of discerning and evaluation. Another tension that you probably feel is with Matthew 5. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you to love those who would turn and attack you or trample you underfoot. Didn't Jesus just say that? Yeah, he definitely did. And that's why I think that rather than pearl clutching being our standard operating procedure, this verse is more what we would call a pendulum swing prevention. A pendulum swing prevention. Enemy love and evangelizing those who don't yet know the gospel, that should be our default setting because that was Jesus. But that doesn't mean that he desires us to beat our heads against the wall or worse still, to have our heads beaten in on a regular basis when we bring the kingdom to others. Let's look at a couple of examples in the New Testament first and then we'll think about what this looks like in our own lives. So in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out ahead of him with some instructions. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, maybe even dogs. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. 
and it was rejected. Can you imagine Jesus' disciples scraping their shoes off on our city's Welcome to Columbia sign? Jesus didn't expect his disciples to stay uh, and continue to minister in a town where they were flat out rejected. Later on, we see this again in um, you know, practical working out in the book of Acts. We see Paul's response to rejection in one of his missionary journeys. Let's read that one as well. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I think one of the things that we can learn from our passage today and from these two examples is distraction versus priority. Distraction versus priority. How easily distracted are we? I know I am. How often do we take the bait? It's always sitting there. It always looks nice. Maybe you're online a lot. Maybe you're on social media a lot like I am. And at some point in the day, you are going to come across that tweet or you are going to read that comment and you're going to want to respond because it's going to get under your skin. You feel this overwhelming urge to reply. But deep down, you know that it's not really going to make any difference. You're casting your pearls in front of pigs. The troll that you're responding to, they're not going to read what you wrote. They're not going to take it seriously. You know this because they never do. There's always a long thread underneath their tweet, and they never respond to it. And they keep tweeting, or keep posting what they've always tweeted and posted. We can waste our time typing away, sending character after character to someone who will openly reject, maybe even mock the gospel or a biblical rebuke. But what we see in the examples within Scripture is this. God has appointed some to hear the gospel and receive eternal life, and others not, or at least not yet. And we can devote an inordinate amount of time to those who continue to reject that we completely miss out on seeing the people of peace who would receive Jesus with joy. If you're, uh, if you're a Mizzou student or a Mizzou alum, uh, or you've just lived in Columbia for a long time. You might be familiar with uh, the gentleman known as Brother Jed, who likes to blast his false gospel uh, from his bullhorn in speaker's circle. I don't know if I could count the number of times where in my head I pulled him aside to rebuke him and plead with him to stop mocking the gospel and the grace of Jesus, whether he was doing that knowingly or not. But you know what? When he gathers a crowd, 
There's lots of people who are there just to argue. But there are also people who are there and they are desperate to hear that there might even be a possibility that there's a God who might know them and who could even love them. Don't cast pearls before swine. Go searching for lost sheep. When I was a bartender at Fuzzy's uh, shortly after moving here, I noticed, or I was really surprised by the number of my coworkers who were really interested and eager to talk about the Bible uh, when they found out that I was a preacher. But I also came to understand that not all spiritual conversations are created equal. It took me a long time to realize that I did not have to have the Revelation end times conspiracy theory talk every shift. Yeah, especially when there are other people right next to me who are genuinely interested in sharing their personal story or asking questions about Jesus. Distraction versus priority. I love having the Revelation end times conspiracy theory talk. I really do. Um, But it's not as important as the Jesus conversation. Jesus says that we don't have to. Indeed, that we shouldn't continue to push the gospel on people who have told us they think that it's hogwash. Scripture makes it clear that while we are the ones who bring the message of the gospel, we're not the ones who cause people to believe. It's only the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart to bring about faith. Telling them about Jesus the first time, the tenth time, the hundredth time, is all the same amount of good until they've received the gift of faith from God. It reminds me of Proverbs 17.10. One rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. If God has given this person the gift of faith, one sharing of the gospel will be enough for them to believe. And if they do not have a spirit of faith from God, a hundred blows will do nothing. Instead, Jesus says we ought to protect his gospel message from needless slander and shame before the world. For some of you, that might sound like a relief. So many of us here this morning, uh, we have dear friends, dear family members who continue to reject the gospel. And we desire so deeply for them to believe, to find a way to bring up Jesus in every interaction. I want to commend the instinct of your heart. You're doing your work to fulfill the Great Commission. Maybe, though, these continual conversations, they're beginning to become frequent fights. And your relationship with these friends or these family members is becoming strained, possibly even to the detriment of your gospel witness or effectiveness. Jesus says it's okay to stop casting those pearls. Continue to pray for them. Absolutely. You're not giving up on people. And prayer is part of evangelism. Prayer is the bedrock of what we do before we share the gospel with someone. We want to pray that God would stir in their heart, lead them to repentance, to see Jesus clearly. Remember, you can only plant and water the seed of the gospel, but it's God who gives growth. If and when he causes faith to grow in their heart, they'll know that you are someone who they can return to for guidance 
and questions. Maybe Jesus' command, it hits your heart and bounces off. Well, I don't care what anyone says or how they respond. I'm never going to stop sharing the gospel with this person. Now, I don't, if that's you, I don't know your heart. But can I suggest that maybe your zeal is actually bringing unnecessary scorn to the gospel? Perhaps the reason that we've lost our strong sense of how sacred the gospel truly is. Right now, uh, we're kind of in a moment of church culture where the word gospel is as much a prefix as it is anything else. Poke your head in any Christian bookstore, and you'll see uh, handbooks for gospel-centered kids' ministry, gospel-driven administration, gospel-crazed custodial crews. I exaggerate a little bit, but the reality And the reality is that we do want everything we do in our individual and our community lives to be saturated by the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's absolutely true. At the same time, the gospel is a real, specific, concrete message. And it's not necessarily a message about what kind of benches we need to put in our lobby. The gospel message is an utterly unique and sacred treasure, and Jesus has entrusted it to his people. In his book, uh, A Doubter's Guide to World Religions, historian John Dixon, he provides his readers with an introduction to five of the world's six largest religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. He provides, among other things, uh, the central questions that each belief system is seeking to answer, as well as some of their overarching claims. And my purpose is to bring this up is not to go on a world tour of religion bashing, but rather I want to present to you the stories that our friends and families, neighbors and enemies live out in our world and how the message of Jesus compares to them. It'll help us see what makes it so unique and so special. So much of religion around the globe is related to doing or earning. Maybe the question is, what good works must I do to escape this cycle of death and rebirth? What wisdom must I acquire? What things must I detach from to escape suffering? What law must I obey to be used by God or remain in his family? What rituals and deeds must I do to tip the scales in my favor so that I can enjoy heaven with God forever? Now, I will admit, that's an oversimplification. But at the same time, can you see the themes and the assumptions that run through these questions? It's all about the person and what they can or must do. What do I need to know? How good do I need to be? What must I give up? What knowledge must I acquire? How does the gospel answer all these questions? How much wisdom must you acquire? It doesn't matter. The wisdom of God makes the wisdom of this world look like foolishness. How much stuff do I need to give away? Some of it, maybe all of it. Whatever you've put between you and Jesus. How good do I need to be? Perfect. What do you need to do? You can't do anything. Compare that to the gospel. The gospel actually doesn't ask questions. It's a statement and a command. 
Here's what we see in Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Turn and trust in this king. Pledge your allegiance to this king. Now the claim is bold, and it has ramifications that ripple throughout all of creation. It should also raise more questions for us too, which the Bible happily answers. Who is this king, and what is he like? Well, he's God's own son in human form. He's gentle and good, and he cares for his people. Where does this kingdom come from, and what is it like? Well, this kingdom was founded when the king sacrificed his own life on the cross to pay for the sins of people who hated him. And because he was faithful to his father in everything, God raised him from the dead. That's the defining characteristic of this kingdom, sacrificial love and resurrection life. It's incredible. It's too good to be true. Could I ever measure up and earn my citizenship in this kingdom? Well, unfortunately, no. The standard is perfect faithfulness to God. Then I'm confused. How could this possibly be good news for me? I'm glad you asked. King Jesus is so good that even though you could never measure up, he would gladly, joyfully share his perfect faithfulness with you so that you can experience the new life that he offers. Karsh Church, the gospel is the sacred treasure that you've been entrusted with. It's a message that we can never take lightly, never get bored with, or let be disgraced if we can help it. It's too precious. It's a better story than anyone could ever offer you. So my friends, believe it and live like you're in that story because you actually are. Let's pray. Father, uh, we bless you together this morning. Your ways and your will, they're so good, they're so beautiful. God, your word, even when it confuses us, it points us to the hope that we have in your son. We praise you and we thank you for him. He's the king of creation. He's a good and gentle king who gives his life for us. God, help us to believe that so deeply that it transforms the way we live in this world and share this message with the people around us. God, as we continue to worship this morning, would you give us unity by your spirit, unity with one another, an even greater sense of unity with your son. It's in his name that we pray, amen.